0: Typically, we uh, only uh, consider a psalm on the first Sunday evening of the month, but I thought, hey, it's the fifth Sunday, so I figured I'd sneak an extra psalm uh, in there uh, this month. Psalm chapter 18, to the choir master, the psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and also from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. He is my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. He is my shield, the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, to my God I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears, and the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing clothes flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and he came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and he flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering and his canopy about him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and he scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because... He delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all of his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. And so the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands in his sight, with the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people. with the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. Lord, my God, lightens my darkness, for by You I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless? He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war, so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me, and your gentleness has made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to them, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives. and Blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. You rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. And for this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed one, to David, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Let's go for the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come to the Psalm, we ask that we would submit to Your Word and hear and hearken to all that You have told us concerning the work of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As you see now, we come to the 18th Psalm, and so far in our study through the Psalter, this is in fact the longest psalm that we have come through at this point. In fact, it's actually the, only the third psalm that has any type of historical reference point Uh, that helps us situate the particular circumstances and conditions under which this psalm was written. You you remember when we looked at Psalm chapter 3, it was under that particular moment in time when David had fled from his son Absalom. Chapter 7, another reference point, is when David's kingship was scorned by a member of Saul's own tribe, a man by the name of Cush, a Benjaminite. Both those other instances, it had to do with David's enemies, and this historical reference is no less true. Here we see, however, comes a point in David's kingship where his humiliation, as it were, has come to an end. And the kingdom is finally established. One of the things you might notice if you have a study Bible is this exact psalm. Is replicated at the end of Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter twenty-two. It comes at the apex, right before the epilogue to the closing of the book, where David uh, recounts this song. He sings this victory song when all of his foes have finally been defeated—not just that of Saul, but those of everyone who has opposed him. I think what we see here is a song that marks a significant advancement in the history of salvation. Uh, Perhaps something that we could put on par with the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, when Israel was delivered from the Red Sea, and in which we will see David makes several references to in this particular psalm. I'd like us to consider this psalm in two large chunks. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of vindication And we'll see here in verses 1 to 29. And then, secondly, the matter of vengeance in verses 30 to 50. So, the matter of vindication, covering the first half of the psalm, and then vengeance, the second half. And then we have to ask what in the world do we do with this psalm? What do we do with this prayer? What we see here, I think this is significant in helping us understand and interpret the psalm before us, that David here is called the servant of the Lord. You see that here in the superscript. It's that same honorific that is given and attributed to Moses over a dozen times in the Old Testament. Very few people in the Old Testament are referred to as the servant of the Lord, most notably Moses and David, and of course, as the Lord will speak of his servants, the prophets, and most notably As we see in the uh, servant songs of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord Himself. And here the servant begins with an acclamation of praise of his burning, impassioned love for the Lord. This isn't the regular Hebrew word uh, that you would typically see when it speaks of love. The the word here is used only on a handful of occasions and it does speak of a burning, fiery zeal here that the Messiah has for the Lord of hosts. These opening verses gush, gush with warfare, with martial imagery. As David extols the Lord as his mountain fortress. As that impregnable stronghold that sits high upon the heights of Mount Zion. He says here, The Lord is worthy of praise, for he delivers his servant. He delivers his Messiah from all of his enemies. And we see here there's a reciprocal affection that the Lord has, uh, that, that, that the servant of the Lord has for uh, the Lord, and now that the Lord has for his servant. Just as the servant sings of his burning love for the Lord, so too does he sing of the Lord's burning fury against his enemies. And that is where the shift now takes place, where he says, I cried out to the Lord. The Lord hears my prayer. He delights to answer my prayer. And he responds in a burning wrath. This psalm here is riddled with what we might call apocalyptic imagery. These, these monstrous cords of death emerging from the netherworld seeking to drag the Messiah down into the depths of Hades. Here we see that the Lord shrouds Himself in thick darkness. He descends from His heavenly temple. Notice here when David says, I cry out to the Lord, and He has heard me from His holy temple, he cannot be speaking of the temple in Jerusalem because the temple in Jerusalem has not yet been built. David here is speaking of the Lord hearing from the heights of heaven. And he rides upon the cherub chariot, hurling thunderbolts, raining down fire and ice, coal and hail, delivering his Messiah from the deep and trampling the nations under his feet. Such is the description David has here of the Lord's response to all of the foes. In many ways, this is a a very important counterpoint to what we've already read in Psalm chapter 2. The Lord from heaven laughs at his enemies. As he says, I've appointed my Messiah and set him on Mount Zion. I've established him on my holy hill. And we've seen between Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm chapter 18, nearly every one of these psalms deals with that tension, how the Lord has promised to grant victory to the Messiah, but that victory still awaits. Here we finally see the resolution in this portion of the Psalter that the Lord has finally delivered the Messiah from all of his enemies uh, poetically, it's just beautiful. Uh, you think of the imagery, this is something that you'd, you'd want to see put on the big screen. And yet when you read its counterpart in First and 2 Samuel, and as you see here, this has reference to what the Lord has done in delivering David from all of his foes that you see recorded in the book of Samuel. Uh, it doesn't quite look like this, does it? Uh, the, the battles that David fights don't look as ostentatious uh, on the ground as he's describing here. Uh, The battles that David waged seems rather normal-looking. That's why I've used that language of apocalyptic. When you hear that word apocalypse, you might be thinking of you know, those 90s you know, Jerry Bruckheimer films like Armageddon or things like that. But the word apocalypse actually simply means an unveiling, a revelation. It's a peek behind the curtain, as you will. Right, you think of Elisha uh, in 2 Kings when he's surrounded by the enemy forces and he has a man with him who is trembling with fear. And Elisha essentially prays that Lord open his eyes to see what is truly transpiring in the heavens. And the man looks up and he sees the angelic hosts encamped around those who fear Yahweh. Now, first and second Samuel might give us uh, the, the human vantage point of what these battles look like. But here David describes the war that has taken place from the heavenlies. As he has been delivered from all of his foes. This is truly a matter of spiritual warfare, where David's daily providences are in fact part of a cosmic battle being waged from the heavens, that the Lord might fulfill his promise to establish his kingdom on earth. Here, the servant of the Lord is described as one commentator puts it as a beleaguered warrior. the the Messiah, he cries out to the Lord. The servant of the Lord cries out to Yahweh, and the Lord hears him from his holy temple in heaven, and he personally descends. In this particular matter, the Lord doesn't simply dispatch uh, his his finest troops, as it were. He doesn't dispatch uh, a group of angelic messengers, though he himself could have done that. Here we see the Lord himself descends from heaven. To answer to the cry of his beloved servant. The imagery here in the Lord's response, you see in verses 7 to 19, burst with echoes of the Exodus. You see that language of fire and ice being hurled from heaven, of hailstone and burning coals. That was, in fact, the seventh judgment plague that befell the nation of Egypt. It's not an isolated, localized affair. This isn't just something that is happening in in a a small sliver of the Middle East, so to speak. You look at verse 7 and 15. Notice what brackets that particular section. It speaks of the foundations of the whole world being shaken. Everything is coming undone. I'm actually so glad that John uh, asked for us to sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God because I really wanted to add a third hymn in tonight and have that be one of them because that really reflects what we see going on here. The mighty fortress that the Lord is to His Messiah. This is cosmic. This is apocalyptic. When the Lord comes to deliver His anointed King, it upends the entire world order. The Lord's fury is compared to a raging volcano, as it were. Smoke and fire and coal. It mirrors the language of the Lord Himself as He descended on top of Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. Here the lofty one personally descends to come to David's aid. He rides upon his own personal chariot, the winged cherubim. He descends in fire and smoke, and the imagery mirrors again That language that we see at Sinai where the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. Here is the God who dwells in unapproachable light. He clouds Himself in thick darkness where the rumblings of the lightnings quake. And He hurls His lightnings like arrows and scatters the nations. He does not dispatch angels to fulfill this task. This mission is personal you know, in pagan mythology, the Canaanites worshiped their own territorial deity, Baal, who is known as the great rider on the storm. He's the cloud rider. But his territory only extended as far as the land of Canaan. Here is, in response, the true cloud rider, the true rider on the storm, the one who is the God of the world, who causes not just the land of Canaan to shake but causes the whole earth to shake. Here, what David is saying is this is not simply some tribal deity. This is the true maker of heaven and earth. One mightier than Baal, one greater than Zeus. One who causes the whole earth to quake in terror as he descends in fiery judgment. Just as he judged the gods of Egypt in fire and in hail, so now he rains fire and ice on all of David's foes and sends them running for cover You see, the Messiah's deliverance is likened here. The servant's deliverance is likened here to the exodus. You look at verse 15, that his burning fury splits the waters. It lays bare the foundations of the earth. This is a picture of the exodus. Just as with Israel, the Lord spoke. You see the pillar in the cloud, the fire and the cloud, protecting the people of Israel. The waters part, the foundations of the earth are laid bare. Just as the Lord had delivered Israel from Egypt, so now the Lord establishes His kingdom on earth in the midst of darkness by delivering His Messiah, His Christ. Here David describes us as in verse 6 as being in dire straits. That, that word there for distress is a word that we've seen before in some of the earlier psalms It's a word that describes crampedness, narrowness, everything. is claustrophobic as His foes are, have surrounded Him. And yet, now in verse 19, the Lord responds by leading his servant into wide open spaces. He has cleared the path before him. And so we see here in verses 20 to 29, the servant of the Lord says, or asks, why is it that the Lord has come to his aid? Why would the Lord personally descend for this one particular individual in such a way and in such a fashion? Well, you see uh, that the reason, the grounds for this is given very clearly in verses 20 to 24. It is the reward for his righteousness. The Lord has paid me my wages according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me according to my righteousness. It is because of my clean hands, it is because of my pure heart, verses 21 and 22. It is because I have kept the law of God that He responds. Because I have loved the Lord with my whole heart, He responds with a burning, fiery love in defense of His anointed King. Yahweh delivers His Messiah on account of His blamelessness. Because He is blameless, death cannot win. The cords of death are unable to keep the Messiah in His watery grave. Death is not able to win. Such is the Lord's promise. And so we see here the Lord's, uh, the, the, the Lord's deliverance of His servant. That deliverance from death is a vindication of His righteousness. That's the point here of the first half of this psalm. The Lord has vindicated me. He has delivered me from death. Why? Because I was righteous. Because I have fully kept the law of the Lord. Therefore, death has no claim on me. In verses 25-29, to 29, we see the psalmist laying out a basic principle regarding the Lord's own character. That the Lord actually reckons with mankind in accordance with their deeds when it comes to judgment. To the kind and to the merciful, the Lord will show Himself kind and merciful. To the blameless, the, man will, the Lord will, will reveal His purity to the pure in heart. And yet for the twisted and perverse, uh, the, the wicked men, they look at the Lord of heaven, and, and it's as they, were, they, they see God as torturous. It's as if they're projecting their own image onto the one true God. They can't stand the sight of a holy God because they know that true judgment comes for them. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is unable to comprehend it. It's really, in essence, the meaning of what's going on here. As the Lord reveals himself even to the wicked, the wicked are not able to grasp who this God is. And nevertheless, the righteous judge of all the earth renders to each man according to all of his works. Why would the maker of heaven and earth stoop, the one who stands lofty and above all things? Why would he stoop and care for the afflicted? Why would he care for those who are in trouble? Why would he care for the destitute? Why would he exalt the humiliated? Why would he bring low the haughty? Why wouldn't he side with the cool kids at the table, so to speak? Why would he shine a light in deep darkness and lift up his servant from the grave? Here we're given a revelation of God's own character. Here the lofty one who stands high and lifted up above the earth is the one who stoops and cares for the poor and the afflicted because He is the just and merciful God. And so the Lord vindicates His servant by delivering him up from death. No wonder the Messiah gushes in His love for the Lord at the opening of this psalm. The Lord vindicates the Messiah, lifting Him up from the realm of death. And here in the second half of the psalm, the Lord does something else as well. He now commits judgment to His servant to execute holy vengeance upon all of His foes. You see that here in the second half of this psalm, verses 30-50, to where the Lord defends His servant, but He's not only His defense. Verse 34, He not only is a shield, He's also a horn. There's a picture there of antlers. It's offensive weaponry. The Lord not only gives him a shield, he also trains his hands for war as he clears a path for messianic victory. That servant who was once humiliated, now being risen and exalted, is able to run in leaps and bounds above his foes. He's like a gazelle on a mountaintop. He's swift. He's nimble. Though once pulled down to the grave, he now alights on the mountains and in fury pursues his enemies down to the very man. He subjugates his foe. He tramples his enemies underfoot. Now his foes are the ones crying out for mercy. But it turns out no one will hear their cry. They even cry out to the Lord. And the Lord will not answer them. The Lord's burning love is for his anointed Messiah, not for his enemies. The time of judgment has come. And so they're scattered like dust in the wind. As we saw in Psalm chapter 1, like, like the chaff that is scattered during the summer breeze. Now the Messiah executes total judgment upon the wicked. And in verse 43, the Lord appoints His servant to be head of the nations, quite literally, head of the Goyim. He's the head of the Gentiles. A a people who did not even know me have come to serve me. In other words, the, the, the Messiah, the servant's victory, is not restricted to the land of Canaan. It is a global domination. It is a global conquest. Verse 47, God grants to his, servants, his servant vengeance to subjugate all the nations, to execute judgment upon all His foes. And so He concludes in verse 49, the servant of the Lord says, it is for this reason, because you have committed to Me judgment, that I will praise You, O Lord, and I will praise You among the Gentiles, and I will sing Your name. The Lord's servant, having wiped out his foes, leads the remnant of the nations as the great psalm singer in the assembly of the righteous and praise to God, this God who now rules and reigns over all, both Jew and Gentile alike. The content of such praise we see here in verse 50. The Lord has granted salvation to His Anointed One, His Messiah. Not just to David, but to David's offspring. See, Psalm 18 establishes a particular pattern then for the Lord's work in the history of salvation. In these closing verses, David makes clear that the psalm regards not only him, but it serves as a pictograph for what the Lord will do with His offspring, the one greater than David, the heir to the kingdom of God. Psalm 18, in other words, serves as a lens for grasping the messianic mission. We see that as early as the superscript says. Uh, Right there at the beginning, it speaks of the salvation that has been given to and given by the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord uh, becomes that title in Isaiah's prophecies that speak of the work of the coming Messiah. Here we're given a behind-the-scenes picture of the Messiah's love for the Lord. The burning and passion love of the Son of God for His heavenly Father. And here it also attests of the Father's love as He comes to the aid of His Son, the Messiah, and promises to establish the kingdom of His Christ and lead Him in triumph over the forces of death even as He delivers Him from the grave. This significant moment in salvation history is described as a new and greater exodus where the kingdom of God is finally established on earth and the gates of Hades are unable to prevail. Because of the Messiah's blamelessness, due to the cleanness of His hands, due to His pure, unadulterated devotion that He has for His Father, the Lord vindicates His Son by delivering Him from the dead and committing to Him a global kingship with the right to execute judgment on all of His foes. That's why we see here the matter of vindication, the matter of vengeance, the matter of justification and final judgment. See, Psalm 18 typifies for us the work of Christ in his exalted state. What is it that Peter says at Pentecost that God has raised Jesus of Nazareth up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it? Because of the cleanness of His hands. Though delivered over to death, it was not possible for death to retain Him because of the sinlessness of the Messiah. What is it that we read of even in Matthew's Gospel when Christ dies on the cross? The earth turns dark. The earth shakes. The rocks split. The temple veil is split. And the Spirit as it were, burst forth from the Holy of Holies to deliver the Messiah and to sanctify the nations. See, Christ's resurrection was the vindication. It is the justification of His blamelessness. Such that the Lord would not abandon His Son to hell nor would He allow Him to see corruption. Having raised Christ from the dead, He has now seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly throne above all nations, not just the nation of Israel, but the whole earth. And He has committed all rule and power to Him and has placed all things under His feet. And so now in Christ's state of exaltation, Christ subjugates the nations either in grace through the preaching of the Gospel, or in wrath as it comes in the final judgment. He comes in grace subjugating those who are made the recipients of His mercy. And He comes in wrath, or will come in wrath on that last day to those who refuse the offer of amnesty and pardon. Psalm 18 is Christocentric through and through. Explicitly cited at two points in the New Testament, we find from the very beginning in verse 2, as it's cited in Hebrews chapter 2, at the very end of the psalm in verse 49, as it's cited in Romans chapter 15. Here, the psalm opens up with the Messiah's own acclamation I will put my trust in him, where Hebrews 2 says, This is Christ Himself singing. Hebrews 2 puts these words on Jesus' mouth. This is the song of Christ Himself. And at the close of the psalm in verse 49, The Messiah says, I will praise you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. And Paul, writing to the church of Rome, Romans 15, verse 8, he says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant. Notice that language. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy just as it is written, citing Psalm 18, verse 49, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is a psalm that speaks the work of Christ and His exaltation and His justification through the resurrection from the dead and in the judgment He gives as all judgment has been committed to Him. May the psalm confirm our faith in Christ's exalted work. That God has raised His Son from the dead so that the nations, including the Oregonians, might praise Him for His marvelous grace. Let's pray. Our Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You have subjected and subjugated all things to the rule of Your Son. Uh, We pray that as we gather tonight to sing His praises, that You would receive the tribute from our lips and from our hearts that is due the King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.